0: My name is Mike Gibb, and I am the Administrator for AccountsRecovery.net, a news and networking site for the collections and debt buying industries, and RepoPulse.com, a news and networking site for the automotive repossession industry. It's my pleasure to bring to you today's webinar. Before I get into the meat of today's discussion, allow me to take a brief moment to talk to you about AccountsRecovery.net and RepoPulse.com. The sites publish original and exclusive content. While also providing networking and business development opportunities. Those opportunities come in the form of discussion forums, groups, vendor directories, and job boards. Membership and use of the site is completely free and it's open to all participants within the industry. I hope you'll consider joining if you have not already done so. Before jumping into today's conversation, allow me a minute to introduce today's speaker. Valerie McGilvery has been a professional skip tracer for nearly two decades. She runs the DailySkip.com, a website for skip tracers, and has nearly 5,000 followers on LinkedIn and more than 8,000 followers on Twitter. She is the author of Skip Trace Secrets, Dirty Little Tricks Skip Tracers Use, Background Check, How to Do Your Own Professional Background Check, and The Most Useful Website for Small Business and Entrepreneurs. We are very lucky to have her join us today, and I'm thrilled that she's agreed to share some of her insights and techniques. One final housekeeping item, if you wish to ask a question, please do so via the GoToWeb GoToWebinar interface on your computer screen. With that being said, let's kick off the discussion. Now Valerie, we thought it was a, a good place to start um, from, a, from a compliance standpoint, uh, what, we can, what, what skip tracers can and can't do when looking for people. Uh, what laws and regulations should they be most concerned about when it comes to skip tracing? So why don't we start there, and then we can drill down into actually what you do when, you, when you're when you looking for somebody.
1: Sure. Sounds good. Well, first off, CFPB doesn't recognize skip tracing as a type of business that should be regulated in itself, but rather a necessary function of collections and repossessions and in the lending industry because you have to find them to collect them. So, me as a skip tracer just doing skip tracing outside of the, the regular normal SDCPA, state, and local laws, CFPB doesn't require me to do anything additional at this time anyway. But the main standards are that for repossessions and debt collections, pretexting isn't allowed in our industry, and a ruse that anyone would decide to do in order to get an address they'd come back to haunt you um, in court, and it doesn't pay or do any good to anger the gods. And because debtors are lawsuit savvy, the things which you decide to employ would be normal, everyday scenarios that a person would encounter, like, for instance, marketing. Marketing mail. And so, um, so that's pretty much it in a nutshell. It's just going to be the state and local laws that govern you, federal, of course. Are you there? Mike?
0: Yeah, I'm here. Sorry. Um, So (laughs) you talked about pretexting uh, and that pretexting not being allowed. Uh, There are some people on the call who are are sure to know what pretexting is, but there might be some who don't. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how that works and why people shouldn't do that?
1: So a pretext, a gag, or a ruse would be some fictitious thing that you present to a debtor in order to get information from them that you normally wouldn't be entitled to or be able to find without doing that, or that they wouldn't give you if you just called and said, Hi, I'm Valerie. I need an address to pick up your car. And they say, "Uh, no, and hang the phone up in my ear. So, I've, you know, you need to become a, an, a creative person and try to figure out how to get from point A to point B, which in my case, it would be getting collateral on the hook without making contact with that person. And for that, we typically are compelled to try to place a pretext uh, in order to do that. So the pretext that typically has drawn so much ire in our industry is that skip tracers and repossessors and debt collectors all alike have impersonated police officers or threatened jail time in order to um, trick or convince or scare someone into surrendering collateral or paying a bill. and while that used to work very, very well, and like I said before, debtors are very um, lawsuit savvy. Social media and talk shows and internet articles and attorneys' marketing have done everything they can do to educate the public <laughs> on uh, what is allowed and what isn't. So, you just have to be safe instead of being sorry and. I've seen so many different ruses go and just end up terribly terribly wrong, and I could give you a million examples right now, but we just don't have that much time <laughs> but um so being the most common for impersonating a police officer is is the thing that probably created these laws that said we cannot do those those pretexts or ruses, and that If you do decide to do something very simple, it would be just like sending a piece of mail that looks like junk mail. And if it comes back to you, then the address is no good. And if it doesn't come back, then there's a 50-50 chance that your debtor is actually at that address. But um, if you get caught in a pretext that Emotionally grab someone in order to figure out where they're going to be, or to force them to surrender or pay a bill. That's a violation of the FDCPA and probably several state and local laws. And it's just you just shouldn't do it.
0: So just to clarify, one of the, one of the things you just said, uh, the sending mm-hmm. the piece of junk mail, that's okay or not okay?
1: Well, if you're sending a piece of junk mail that's like a postcard that says, hey, we want to cut your grass or call maid service or I want to sell you insurance, you know it's going to go in the garbage. They're probably never going to pick up the phone and call you. And if you're using an address that doesn't have anything to do with you or your business, like, for instance, a post office box, um, and the mail comes back to you, then you know it's dead. But you're not. You're not sending out mail that has someone's debt information on it. So me, personally, I do send junk mail. And it is for the purpose of figuring out if an address is good or not. And because I'm a late-stage skip tracer, and I know that the deal that I have has been double and triple assigned, and that you know other people have given up, the repossessors that I give work to aren't just going to jump in their trucks and run out to an address because I say go there. They want to hear me say I've verified that they're there. I sent mail. It didn't come back or, or something, you know, that I know in my heart and that I've proven and verified and confirmed that the address is more than likely a good address. So stepping off into the realm of mail and junk mail, The FDCPA says you can't send postcards and you can't send mail that has anything on the outside of the envelope that refers to a collection agency or collecting a debt, but, and no debt information. So if you're sending junk mail to test an address, you're not violating those. You're just sending junk mail. You're not going to say, Anything on that envelope or anything on that postcard that has anything to do with them, because first of all, if you find an address on a database or somebody says, "Oh, he lives over there now on so and so street," and you think you might have found it, and you send some test junk mail, um, you you don't want to alert the gutter that you found them, because if they have any suspicion on getting that mail in, in the mailbox, your vehicle's not going to be sitting in the driveway anymore. So you don't want to blow that opportunity.
0: And but I, guess, uh, so I mean, like, for example, I've been living in my house mm-hmm. for 10 years, and I still get junk mail or mail for the person who was living here before, you know, sure. the people we bought the house from. I just throw mm-hmm. it away. I don't send it back. So, I mean, I guess the junk mail mm-hmm. is, is, an, is an indication, but not really a a... a a predictor, correct? Uh, well, whether or not somebody's at that address,
1: it is. It's, it's just if, if someone new has moved into a, an address, and I send junk mail to someone, you know, insurance company advertising, whatever, even a birthday greeting card, heck, come in. You could be creative, and it comes back. Either the new tenant has told the postal carrier, "Don't deliver that person's mail here anymore. I don't want it." or the post carrier knows that that person moved and they'll return to send her a mail for the previous tenant. And apartment complexes are good about that. Those, those postal carriers shove mail into tiny mailboxes. And if people don't want mail in their mailbox, um, then that postal carrier without having, and you know, you don't have to tell them twice, they'll take care of it for you and then the flip side is if an address was used as a business address or a post office was registered as a business post office by that person who used it they don't allow mail forwardings at all so if you walk into a lease an office and you lease an office and you put in a mail forwarding your mail will not be forwarded so if a a person leases an office, and then they skip out on the office, or and then you find the address later, and you think, oh, it's going to be a good address. He works there, and you decide to go send some mail before you send a tow truck to go drive 100 miles to make it there, and it doesn't come back to you. That's why, because the post office won't forward business mail or mail from a business address. And then, yes, you can tell, or the new tenant will be able to tell the post office, don't deliver this. But that would be the only reason it would go back. And it still may not come back. It may go in the trash. Right.
0: Uh, you mentioned one other term that I want to clarify, just for, for people who might not be familiar with it. You said uh, late stage uh, skip tracing. Can you talk a little bit about the if there are any differences between maybe early stage and late stage?
1: Well, I guess when I say late stage, describing myself, um, I work on accounts that no one else can find and I'm contingent of course and I I know that several repo companies before me sorry that's why i was saying hello (laughs) several repo companies before me have tried and that I know they employ skip tracers and skip trace methods and they knock doors and they're and they're still on it as well um that uh, they have given up, stopped working it, and and so six months down the line, I get deals, and so it's late stage. I'm at the stage where they probably already bought another vehicle, and they're working on trying to figure out who to give that jalopy to. <laughs> Sorry, collateral, <laughs> and um, and then you know they think they've gotten off, that they're 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 going to get off, and that we'll we'll. We'll get the car when we find it. And um, they, uh, I, I know that a lot of debtors, by the time I get them on the telephone, they think, wow, I can't believe you found me. It's been like a year. <laughs> but what happens is actually, to clarify, after a certain amount of time, debtors feel safe again to apply for credit. And they feel safe doing the things that they were not doing before in order to hide from the recessors. So and that that comes into play as well. So late stage is is when everybody else has given up and they just don't have the resources or too much new work has come in and they don't feel like that deal was worth their time. They failed already or that they weren't they didn't get good leads that led them to to believe they were gonna come close to getting collateral to our picked up and then I just see them stop. They just stop trying. And of course, all my vehicles that I get are already in level 2 on DRN, RDN. So um, there's that as well. All right. Excellent. Now let's talk about,
0: um, do you recommend people have a specific process, that there are steps that they follow when they're, when, when they're, when they're skip tracing? Or is, is that not very important?
1: Well, sure, absolutely it's important. Um, a skip tracing process can be more related to traditional, traditional profiling methods as well. An example would be uh, a single mother versus a young man with no kids or responsibilities. And you, you wonder who is going to be the better bet to show up in a database or, or require an application for some type of credit-related or credit-based account to be um, obtained in order to survive. And so a mother with kids is going to stay in the same area with her parents and her family support versus a young man who doesn't have kids or responsibilities. That person is more likely to actually change cities, towns, or even move out of state. So and then um I do have the ultimate skip trace list and it that happened because an older repo man called me on the phone one night and said, Valerie, you used to get like six cars a day. What happened to you? <laughs> what happened? Now you're just not you're just not doing what you used to do. You better start doing that thing that you used to do and I thought, What did I used to do? So I sat down and And I started making a list of everything that I did that actually gave me information. And so that list became the ultimate skip trace list. And there are some things on the list that may not be uh, legal for repossessors to do. And I reformulated the list for a complete background search so that if you do a report, that information is there and that you would... It would be, it would look the best or be the best presentation for a background report. But um, it's it's also inspiration. I look at my list when I get stuck, and I and then I see and I say, okay, I haven't done that one thing. So let me go look for filings. Let me go look for traffic tickets because all that stuff is online. Warrants. It didn't even it used to be open online or available to you if you called on the phone, but now you can call and get information about a warrant and they don't even have any concern if you're the person that you're calling for or not they'll give you the information it's almost as if it's public information and I couldn't say why that is I'm just grateful that it is because these court dates and these other things predicting where someone is going to be so that they can either be served with process or the repo truck can be there at the opportune moment to get a vehicle picked up um, that's predictability to predict where somebody is going to be, obviously. So the list, you know, I say create your own list and these things in your own area, um, the things that work the best could be regional. I know in Dallas County, it's very difficult to get property records online, and, but not in Harris County. So, um, so if I have a Dallas gift, I won't even try to go online to their court system or what have you to look for anything. I feel like it's a waste of my time. But in Harris County, it could be one of the very first things that I go for. If someone once owned a property, they may very well own property again. And hopefully my car is in their garage and I just have to figure out if they're working and where they're working, <laughs> what what time they would you know necessarily want to drive down the road that I think they're living off of and hope you know, that I can figure out how to get a repo truck connected with my collateral, and then uh, taking a turn into credit pro- credit-related products, because we are in credit and collections, um, we have better data available to us as a credentialed credit and collections business. I have experience, and I rely heavily on experience, in addition to all of the other databases that I have. Um, when you go to a new car dealership, Dodge dealership, you apply to buy a new Dodge truck and you sell out a credit application and it's submitted online, Experian has that new information, the new address, the new telephone number, the new everything online, seconds after it's submitted into the system. For Equifax, it's the next day or maybe the day after, but it's still going to be there faster or years before it will ever appear in any other database. So so experience is the next step after I do these other very simple searches that don't necessarily cost money to do. I go into the uh, credit and collection based databases and then I start tinkering around with uh, social media sites and this and that and um, Google Alerts is very important. I I haven't been faithful to Google Alerts, but earlier this year there was a young man who had a motorcycle and he was out for repossession and his name was Darren Ozine. He was racing in, at three o'clock in the morning in Houston on the back of a motorcycle, which was out for repossession, although it was at my collateral, racing a Corvette and He was assumed to be going over 100 miles an hour, and Darren Ozine rear ended a vehicle and died. So, Mike, can you guess what vehicle Darren Ozine rear ended?
0: Um, One that was out for repossession?
1: No. Darren Ozine rear ended a repo truck. (laughs) (laughs) Darren Ozine running from the repo man. Gipped out for years, racing down the highway on collateral, which was out for possession of someone else, uh, rear-ended a repo truck. And uh, I knew probably before his mother knew that he had died. I got the email in my in, inbox. Uh, the Houston Chronicle put the, put the accident and video footage, raw footage, and um, and that was it that's what happened. So it's that fast, it's that good. And um, Google is the master and the, the top of the rung on uh, search engines because they have hundreds of more bots or probably thousands crawling an in internet site that they can crawl versus being in Yahoo. They just don't have very many. So on the Daily Skip, I have An IP grabber, it tells me the IP address and how long someone was when they visited the site. And I also get to see all of the Google bots that came to visit, (laughs) and it's a lot. It's an impressive amount. It tells me that Google is going to be uh, the master of internet searches for a long time to come. So Google Alerts is is definitely worth your time to enter phone numbers, names, especially if they're unique names, relative names, I found obituaries coming into my email of funerals yet to be had, and they were grandparents of debtors, and yes, the debtors showed up, and yes, the repo man showed up, and repoed the car at the funeral, and would not have been able to get it done in a timely matter if it wasn't for Google Alerts. Anyway.
0: Let's talk about, um, well, let's go back first and clear up the thing. You mentioned Experian sure. and Equifax and the credit mm-hmm. databases. databases. Who are those available to? Are we, are they? You know, are we, what's a, a price range that people might be looking at? Can you provide some more information about those, since those seem to be very high on your list of places where you're looking?
1: Um, so Experian and Equifax and TransUnion uh, don't allow home-based businesses. You have to be commercially zoned. Um, You may need to have a collections bond in place, which I have affordable referrals for that if if anyone is interested. Um, You would need to, uh, I I wouldn't necessarily use the word repossession. I wouldn't say or just top bill yourself as a repossession agency only because you are adjusting a debt, and we are subject to the FDCPA. So I did hear a couple of years ago that Equifax did not like repossession agencies. And for what reason they had, I wouldn't, I couldn't say. But the best thing to do is not mention that you actually run trucks. Um, And since I don't do that, I didn't have any issues. But, again, I told them that I was uh, a late-stage auto finance collector. And essentially, that's the truth. So um, I would say that it was not just throwing out there that you're a repossession agency. I spend, um, I guess, maybe $90 to $100 on experience, sometimes a little more. Uh, it's worth working to get. It's worth calling to find out, okay, what do I need to qualify? And, and ask questions. And, and tell them what you do and, and ask them, what do I need to do to get qualified? And look it out for me on the line. Talk to a salesman and then put a plan in motion to get to that point. We've been so I
0: That's $90 to $100 a month or per search? Uh, A a month. A month,
1: okay. Certainly, a month. And um, each one of them has their own price structure. I think I spend a little more with Experian than I do with Equifax, but the differences are Equifax is very southern, well, I should say more strong in the southern region. Uh, cable TV, cell phone companies, um, some utility companies I see using Equifax, which is which makes First Search, which that's their skit trace product. It's First Search. It makes that work so much because people have to have utilities to, to survive. And so Experian is different in the way that I see apartment complexes, a lot of collection agencies, mom-and-pop companies, um, pulling experience to determine credibility uh, and the amount of deposit they would require in order to do business with that debtor. Um, So having both is the prime spot and TransUnion is the low man on the totem pole and so let me reorganize this for you and tell you why I say TransUnion is the low man on the totem pole. Equifax being you have to have 500 accounts or more to report negative credit. So as a collection agency I would have to have 500 or more accounts at a time to report negative credit. Experian allows a small business or any subscriber to report derogatory credit one account at a time. So this makes Experian the most addressed and easily accessible way to get information and let other people know that are looking at that person's credit that they're they delinquent for a car loan or whatever you know that thing may be. So. So that's why I think that Experian has better information because they are they have offered small businesses and independent subscribers an easier way to get the information from them, to provide to them information that I would never be able to get off of Equifax or TransUnion. So TransUnion, the reason why I say they're the low man on the totem pole, they're the most expensive to access and I haven't checked prices in a few years, but when I checked more than a year ago, they were the most expensive. And they have the strictest rules about uh, reporting negative credit to them. So that means they're getting less information from mom and pop companies, earnings, rental, you know, companies, rent furniture, rental center, uh, small note lots are never going to be able to use. Union. They're using Experian or Equifax, one or the other, and most likely it's going to be Experian, just just because you can report one account at a time. So, so that's it. I think that um, there's a lot of other factors, too, uh, in their price structure, you know, to access credit reports as well. Experian is more affordable. Equifax is not. (laughs) They're very proud of their product and they they charge accordingly. accordingly. And then TransUnion, I I couldn't quote a price for them, but since they were out of my reach uh, several years ago, I mean, I I know that they had a skip trace product as well, and that they, when they bought CLO, I think they. Shut down the skip trace product that they did have I don't remember the name of it I know it's in one of the books that I wrote but I haven't heard anybody say the name or talk about it in so long it's slipped my mind so there you go
0: got it now let's sort of kind of hone in a little bit because you talked a lot about uh, um, some of the searches At what point, you know, should people exhaust all of their sort of free resources like Google and Mm -hmm. social media, should they exhaust those first before looking at a paid resource, or you know, what's sort of the the, the right way to kind of structure a process?
1: Well, personally, I'm not going to, I really never believe that someone who is out for repossession is going to post a brand new address on any social media site or on the the internet. And there's the rare person who is self-employed and doesn't ever change their telephone number, and uh, they may not post a new address, but they may leave another telltale, uh, I don't know, like Manta or Merchant Circle type listing within your PO box or mailbox rental because they're still in business for themselves and they're not going to be able to stop all of their rare line of contact with the outside world just to evade a repossessor. They still have to make money to live. So um, I I tend to not jump into social media or start searching on Google and Yahoo right away when I get a skip. I do send junk mail first, and then um, I may look for cars that have been purchased, hoping that a new vehicle has been purchased and there's a new address, and if not, I can find a phone number and call that debtor and say, look, I see you bought a new car. Um, You can either pay up to date or give it back. You tell me what you want to do (laughs) and kind of throw that into, into there. A rational thought and hope that they do that and then of course hunt, hunt on social media sites and um, I it's so rare to find someone that actually wants to give social media uh, a fair shake and and post information like oh I got a new job at Circle K or talk about themselves in a way that gives you an idea where they're going to be um, because they're afraid and they know that they're running from someone and that if they post that they're going to be found and they can be repossessed. But social media does have this one unique thing and it is that um, uh, it breeds narcissism. If a narcissist or someone who gets a lot of appraise and approval from their peers um, posts new information about themselves in their lives or posts Photographs of the apartment complex that they're in, and there happens to be a license plate for a vehicle in the parking lot in the background. I want to look for that. I'm going to run that license plate. I want to see where they are and hope that I can narrow it down to even a zone. You know, if I could just figure out if it's a, a block of apartment complexes in a zip code, I'm happy because that means. A repo truck can drive through there. We'll probably find my car. So, um, and then the the rarity of actually seeing that on a public profile is apparent. I just don't think that that it happens with people realizing that there's so many. So much privacy that they're losing by the social media in the beginning, and then they're suspicious of being found. But I do look for, I look for relatives and I look for friends that they hang out with, and I do have a Facebook profile. Actually, I have several, and um, I don't contact people on social media, but I'll attempt to connect with them uh, through their friends and hopefully someone that has a million friends will decide that I'm a safe bet and that I see the profile of their average friend and that this photograph and this persona that I have is interesting to them and they feel safe. And then I can kind of hopefully see some information through someone else's Facebook or find out you know, what's going on in their lives through things that their mothers say or they talk about, uh, getting starting a class for a massage therapy school or some crazy thing like that. So so yeah, that's important. I I also have to caution anybody that does that and, and anybody that actually does it now knows not to bill collect someone on social media. You you should never do that because if you do that, you're going to burn the idea that you are going to be able to see what they're saying on social media. If you present yourself in the manner where you're you're upset and you're emotionally overtaken, you see that they're driving this vehicle, posting selfies, and you feel um, that it's okay to be confrontational on social media. It's it's actually going to hurt you they're going to shut their Facebook down. <laughs> they they may, you know, block you and then make everything completely private and you have lost the future um, uh, reality or your future expectations of ever seeing anything like that ever again. You have to sit back and see, be a silent observer. One of the Facebook profiles that I have is of a young Hispanic woman and she is a grant writer and she works for nonprofit and she's really sweet and she gives good advice and she comforts people. She's non-confrontational and she says, "Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Prayers for you." And then says, "You know, listen, I know that you're having a hard time, but I want to tell you all the Lutheran churches have clothes closets and food and they'll help you with toys for your kids at Christmas time and so on." and say all these wonderful, helpful things that lift that person up. So you're opening, you're opening, a, you're opening um, what is the word I'm looking for? The probability that they're going to talk to you and give you some type of information that can help you figure out how to get with them in the future, you know, figure out where they're going to be or where they're living. But, you know, it's, it's non-confrontational. And I do know that and I'm not really sure if it's actually a violation of the FDCPA now. I don't think it is, but it's it's been um, tossed around that it could be future a future thing that, that they write into FDCPA that says you know, online or a certain type of electronic communication. If you don't give permission in advance, then um, it's it could be a violation of the law and. You know, there's that, and we don't want to rile people up to the point where they rally their privacy peers and privacy activists to make that uh, a law. We we want to be able to do that, but, you know, first and foremost, you don't want to harass someone on social media because you lose the opportunity to get information in the future, and there's no reason to burn that. But there is something that's worth worth talking about and that I had made a note to tell, um, on LinkedIn, I want to send you a connection request on LinkedIn. Um, if you will go header on your email, LinkedIn sends you the email address of that person's account. So whenever you send me an email, I mean a connection request, and of course I have cPanel email, so I'm looking at my header in cPanel, and I know that on all the other free email like Gmail and Yahoo that I do believe it exists, but I don't know what you click on to... Expand the section so that you can see the email address But it clearly says LinkedIn emails and it, and it gives the account name from the your it will have your name then it will have your email address Mike and then When I saw that for the first time I thought oh wow i will never send someone a connection request on LinkedIn ever again for the rest of my life not because not because um, I don't want people to get my email address. I never hide my email address. It's because when they send me a connection request, I can get their email address. So the interesting thing about LinkedIn is whenever you go visit someone's profile page, if your profile is not private, then that person is going to see that you looked at their profile. And if you go look at it a couple of times, and your profile is set up to be the same industry that they are, they may go ahead and out of just intense curiosity send you a request to connect. And then you get their email address. So an email address in skip tracing is almost as good as a social security. And I said this on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think emails are now specific to one person in that I do see older couples share an email address. They're together. But I do see one person having several email addresses, but it's still specific to one person in in my observations. And so taking that one specific email that I get when someone sends me a request on LinkedIn and, and doing all those other things that I mentioned earlier, Google Alert, search Google with it, and we don't have a we don't have a really good way to figure out when an email address was created, um, only to hope to find other accounts with that email address uh, such as Twitter or um, Facebook, because people can be found with their email addresses that they use to create those other social media sites. And then Twitter has this really awesome thing that uh, Michael Bazell has been teaching. I mean, he had a Udemy video up, and I, I, I don't know if it's still up or not, and it's worth checking into. Both MIT and Harvard created a Twitter tool, and Michael Bazell demos this and teaches you how to use it in video. These Twitter tools are created off of Twitter's free API, and they literally can track a user driving down the highway tweeting it's almost as good as having a GPS in someone's vehicle. So um, without knowing how to do the first thing, you wouldn't be able to do the second thing. So it all works together and creates this really neat way of figuring things out. And it could be that it it takes more time to find uh, that information that I'm willing to give it. So I can't I can't give you a step by step instructions, and I'm sorry for that. Um, but it's worth lo- looking into to learn on your own. And uh, I can give you the links for Twitter and MIT very quickly. Um, my URL shortener is TUC.ME, and that's Thomas Umpire Charlie Mary Edward. And then a flash. And MIT is MIT. And then for Harvard, I do believe it's slash Harvard. And then you can go check them out. There's lots of videos on YouTube that teach you how to use those things. And um, they're just amazing. And they're inspiring as well. So, um, but because I have like 400, 500, really by the end of January, I'll probably have closer to 700 skip trace accounts. It's a phenomenally huge amount of work for one person to do alone. So I kind of tend to go ahead and spend the money. I go ahead and do the search on Experian, Equifax, some of my other more reliable, I I say reliable, that I know and trust and have used forever, uh, which is SkipSmasher.com, FindMySkip.com, IRB Focus is another good one. Uh, You know, just jumping in there and doing these quick searches to hopefully see uh, if there's anything new that's been posted. And then uh, I don't even look at them when I run them. I'll take a huge stack of file folders, and I'll flip open a file folder, and I'll run one debtor, and I'll print it and flip the file folder over, and then take the next one and print it and flip the file folder over, uh, over. And then they all stay on my printer in order, and then I go back and collate them into the files. And then I do the next database, which could be a motor vehicle database. I go in and I'll run addresses and debtors' names to see if they bought any vehicles um, after they purchased the collateral that I'm looking for, hoping that there will be a new address or that I can figure out how to find auto insurance that might have a new address and <clears throat> you know, keep the process going along. And if I don't do it that way, I'll get stuck on one file all day long, and I have no guarantee that I'm actually going to be able to get that due close. So I've lost eight hours of work on one case, and I've not made any money. So I have to push through and force myself to stay focused on just getting the databases run and then I go back and sit with a highlighter and scan things through and um, you know circle with a pink marker or whatever, anything that looks interesting and then anything that's super new, I send a report to uh, you know you can gauge and compare different databases to see when someone applied for credit using that address the very first time or that or the very first date that it was brought into. Or noted as a record in another database, and of course, you know, all these databases don't just have credit and collections information from credit reports. They buy all types of marketing data from all over. I mean, just yeah, it's phenomenal what I've figured out that they bring into their data, and and this is really important for the underbanked. Uh, Sector of debtors that I'm actually looking for. And I say underbanked, of course, because they can't walk into a bank and apply for credit and get a loan to buy a new car or get a loan, a signature loan, to uh, bail their son out of jail and pay for attorney fees. And which, you know, in my business, I see a lot of parents helping their kids. And that's one of the reasons why they go backwards on auto, is because they're doing something for someone else. It puts them in desperation. And so um, and then, you know, I had another point I was going to make, but I went off to Westfield. I'm really sorry.
0: <laughs> That's okay. Well, let me ask you a question and, and give you a chance to collect sure. yourself. You talked about the, the Facebook profiles that you had. Uh, I'm sure mm-hmm. there might be some people out there thinking that, isn't that pretexting?
1: Yeah, it, it could be perceived as pretexting, but the very important thing that, that you have to, force yourself to do, and that is not go collect, be condescending, or snide to anyone. You just need to be, you know, a part of their group. You know, if they're watching rap videos and they think Snoop Doggy Dog is awesome, mm-hmm. then you need to be that way, too. Um, so you, you cannot be confrontational. There are some judges give process servers permission to serve people via social media, because they're not answering the door or they can't be found, and it's a protective order or no contact order, and um, they're they need social media in order to send those papers through to someone, and uh, you know if you if you create confrontation and harass someone on social media for their car being out for repo. I mean, that's just dumb. That's as dumb as finding a new address and a new telephone number on a database at the same time and calling that person. Because if you, if you have the willpower or you have the angst to call them on the phone, you're gonna destroy your, your opportunity of being the vehicle picked up in the driveway. Because a debtor knows, I got this new phone number and this new address at the same time deliberately in order to hide from you, Repo man. And they're gonna say, well dang, if they found my new a- phone number, they have found my new address. And they're gonna call their friend and say, hey, I need to hide my car in your garage. <laughs> I've been made. And then, you know, you're free. So it's, it's bad all the way around to do that. So, okay, pretexting maybe. But if you don't break your rules of non-confrontation and don't harass someone and just just be silent and observe, then I... And I couldn't stand to be corrected, of course, but I have never had an issue. I'm really nice to people. And my, my persona, my grant my writer persona this very pretty young woman who is very sweet and kind to everyone, she doesn't always get the information, but she doesn't get blocked. And when I think about it and I can go on that persona and I connect with someone and I I can talk to them and they start to tell me everything that's going wrong and I can give them some good advice along with discovering what's going on with them, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think that it's a win-win for me. I don't always send a repo truck out to people like that either. You know, if I hear they're going to do something or if they have a plan and I know where they are, I might give them a week or two to see what they do with the lien holder. Because actually, my contract, I get paid the same, no matter if a vehicle gets repossessed or they go in and pay. It's one or the other. And I'm, I'm just as happy with someone paying. So, you know, good things happen to bad. I mean, bad things happen to good people. We are only human. And having that human uh, realization that uh, bad things happen to good people will stop you from being uh, aggressive on social media.
0: In terms of social media, you know, we've talked about LinkedIn and Twitter and mm-hmm. Facebook, and there are others out there, Instagram and, and a bunch more. Are there? Are they all sort of created equal, or is it depending? You know, are there different strengths, and weaknesses to, to any to each, depending on what you're looking for?
1: Well, that's not a question that anybody can actually answer because they change so often, and they. You know, Facebook brought in a new feature on their Messenger app where, unbeknownst to most users, if the location was turned on on your cell phone, whenever you sent a message to someone, even a stranger, you were sending your actual location of where you were when you sent the message. And that, I've gotten a few cars repos this past year because of it, but um, it secured a few months after I posted my findings on the daily (laughs) skit. So, uh, you know, and then Facebook might introduce something else where people unknowingly submit or broadcast their location or some other detail about them or their life, and they don't know that they need to go in and and turn that feature off. Uh, They just silently the shit out there and without thinking, I don't, I, I love it when they do that, honest. <laughs> and, um, but, and so, you know, LinkedIn is trying to be more like Facebook with, with some of the features that they've implemented in this past a uh, couple of months. And I don't, I mean, you know, I, I a lot of it I hate. I've gotten on LinkedIn less because it's, it's very irritating and it's very difficult to navigate and maneuver, but, you know, it's still the leader in uh, in business connections and that people who are job hunting, they're probably going to have a LinkedIn profile. And um, Twitter, Twitter, I think that everyone has a Twitter account and Twitter has the greatest level of anonymity. And I'm gonna back up to Facebook but several years ago, Facebook passed that little rule that said no more private profiles, and now the new rule is no fictitious names. So um, it helps us, you know, identify these profiles of people who uh, otherwise we wouldn't be able to find. And of course, teenagers and debtors' kids are gonna have Facebook profiles that help, and that helps us figure out you know, how to get to that other post if they have a fictitious or, like, other type of hood name. <laughs> so, you know, Melissa, I'm getting the money bank. Now, actually, they're not allowed to do that anymore. Thank God. But but so, no, uh, yeah, all social media, they're not created equal. But it's, it's such an evolving... Uh, realm that nobody will ever be able to say what's better than the other
0: got it now we've just got a couple minutes left so if anybody does have any questions now the time to, to get them in if you haven't submitted them already via the questions interface on your GoToWebinar control panel uh, this one came in uh, related back to junk mail uh, what is a good way to make junk mail and what return address does the junk mail you said need to have on it
1: well, first rule, don't use an address that's associated with your business. Um, use a, use a P.O. box. I'm in Houston, so I have a P.O. box that a million other people ha- have rented before me, and I use that. Some junk mail I print on my computer, and, you know, it says, I want to sell you insurance. Call me, because that's a big deal with Obamacare and the health care marketplace all these companies are peddling their insurance policies and they want to sell. So it's, it's a usual thing that you would see in your mailbox. And another one that I really like is VistaPrint. Uh, VistaPrint mails them for you, even though you're paying full-price postage, sadly, um, and they're, they're paying bulk rate. it's going to come to the debtor's box with the bulk rate, you know, print on it, with VistaPrint bulky, and uh, and then you, of course you can use any return address that you want. So uh, one of the most important things is whenever you do send mail, to use the address service requested under your return address. And um, some of these databases that we talk about, and that we all know and love do, by the National Change of Address Database, uh, bigger ones. I mean, I. Uh, I know FindMySkip.com has it, and I already know that Experian has it on their Skip report as well. Um, so uh, the flip is that it's, it looks official, and you're sending that out. You might as well get the most you can out of your, you know, quarter, fifty cents, or whatever you're spending for a postage stamp. And if you, if there is a uh, forwarding address on file, you'll get a little postcard back in the mail where the post office has taken a scan address file of the mail, mail piece, and they um, will impose it on a bigger postcard and give you the new address, the forwarding address. And it will say new, and then it'll say old, and then under it, it will say, give you the new address. I'm sorry for going all over the place. Actually, there's, there's a blog post that Robert Scott was a smasher. Uh, he wrote it um, a couple of years ago, and it's on the Daily Skip. But the image for that blog post is actually one of my postcards. And it shows, it's an image, a scan of what the post office sends to you when you use your service requested. So there's a list of commands for for the post office that you would place under your return um, address and one of them takes the mail piece and sends it back to you with the new address and then the other is the one that forwards the mail piece on to the debtor or whoever you're sending it to and then you get the postcard back that is featured on that one blog post. And then we have some newer tools available. I use Melissa Data. I have for years. And they just recently put up a really neat search where you can take your files, like an Excel file, and upload it and scrub it into their National Change of Address database. And they give you the corrected addresses or the new addresses. So I can't really quote prices. I don't know how expensive it is, but if you are dealing with a lot of files and you are able to download an Excel file out of your um, you know management software management database and then scrub it into Melissa data's uh, forwarding tool, then you're you're doing the same thing as sending junk mail so if you if you are in a collection agency, and you know you absolutely cannot do junk mail, you have those other tools available to you. And um, I think that they're, they're pretty neat and they're fairly new, and I'm excited about them.
0: <laughs> That's good. We've got time for one more question. So here, uh, this will be the last one. When do you feel is a good time to finally call the debtor or their family, or do you feel that silence is always best?
1: Well, it, you know, I, I don't even know how to answer that question. I think when I put my hands on a file and I read through the notes, it's a case-by-case basis to make that decision. Um, if someone has been communicating very well with the lien holder or, you know, the original lender, and all of a sudden communication stops, and I see they've bought a new car, I'll probably call and say, hey, so do you want to keep it or do you want to give it back? I mean, do you want to keep it and pay for it or do you want to give it back? Tell me what you want to do. What are your plans? And then they lay their story on me. They tell me all of their situation, and I'll get rewarded with one thing or the other. They'll either say, well, I just bought a new car. Give me some time to get my stuff out a day, and then I'll give you an address, and you can come and get it. And then, you know, other people haven't or, or aren't able to pull themselves up into a place or don't want to uh, pull themselves up into a place where they can buy a new vehicle. They, they assume that their relationship is completely blown with their lender and they're going to continue to run. They're going to drive that vehicle till it blows up. And, um, and so you just have to, you have to read through notes and ask questions. And then, hopefully, there's something that gives you an idea of of when it is okay and when you shouldn't. but And that goes back to that thing that I said earlier. If I do a quick search on a database and find a new phone number and a new address, I'm not going to call them and alert them. That is not going to happen. I'm going to find a repo truck to send it to go run the address. you you can't You can't alert them via phone um, when you do that, you would have this new phone address combination. That's just stupid. I've lost so many cars because I jumped the gun and I think it took me forever to figure out to just hold my heels and just not do it. And um, And then, and then there's other files that you pick up and you get you know, that ESP sense and, and also profiling. You've, you know, versus a young mother versus a, um, a a young man. A young mother is going to apply for credit out of necessity and you're gonna find new information on her versus a young man with no kids or responsibility. And then if I find a new phone number for a young man, I'm not gonna call him. I'm gonna to try to bust that phone number and find any information that leads to where he is right now versus calling it and blowing uh, that phone number. Because after that phone call, all they have to do is call the phone company and have their phone number changed. And then I'm done. I'll never be able to call that number again. So that's how you rationalize. That's how I rationalize. That
0: makes sense. Uh, Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, I truly want to thank Valerie for her time and her insights. Uh, I also want to thank all of you who signed up. I appreciate your faith and support. Uh, If you're not already members of accountsrecovery.net or repopulse.com, I hope you saw a glimpse of what membership can provide and sign up today. Please stay tuned for more articles and details about this important topic and others, and be sure to enjoy the rest of your day.